I'm Tom Rivett Karnak, and today we've got a special bonus episode of Outrage and Optimism for you. Now, as part of our Race to Zero series, we'll be talking to leading figures in diplomacy, politics, business, finance, activism, entrepreneurship, to understand exactly how we can move the global economy to mobilize faster in pursuit of a net zero future. The Paris Agreement has, of course, been adopted by more than 190 countries and is the North Star also for many cities, regions, companies and financial institutions. At the heart of it is the goal for net zero global greenhouse gas emissions and a deadline that guides how deeply we need to cut those emissions to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Science demands that to stay to 1.5 degrees, we have to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible, and certainly before 2050. But how do we get there? We can't just keep emitting all the way to those dates and then drop off precipitously. We need to have a smooth descent, reducing at least by 50% by 2030. What role do nature-based solutions play? We absolutely need to restore nature, restore the biosphere. But how do we integrate that with our net zero climate goals? Is it okay to offset a proportion? If so, what proportion and at what time? At the moment, we're in a situation where there isn't that much standardization around what a net zero goal is. And that can be good in some ways because it provides innovation and momentum and interest, but it can be bad because how do we know that everybody is measuring them in the same way, in a manner that is comparable? What does net zero even mean? Is it the same as carbon neutrality? What do any of these other terms that we talk about mean and how do they relate to each other? Now, recently, I had a fascinating chat with Dr. Thomas Hale, Associate Professor of Global Public Policy at Oxford University. He's part of a team that just released a report, Taking Stock, a Global Assessment of Net Zero Targets. The report is the first quantitative analysis of the robustness of the different types of net zero targets and provides a baseline against which we can compare all of the different targets. I've known Tom for a long time. We worked together in the years before the Paris commitment. He is a brilliant academic and he's more than that. He's practical. He's solutions focused. He's really the man to guide us through it. So here we go with Tom Hale in a new section that we're probably going to be bringing back and which we are, of course, calling What the Hale Does This Mean? Tom Hale, what a pleasure to have you on Outrage and Optimism. Thank you so much for joining us. We are honoured to be talking to you. Uh, We've known each other for a long time and always had the greatest admiration for your work and the role that you've played in the global system. So great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, So I wonder if we could kick off. There's no one better positioned than you to help us understand this slightly squishy or maybe not concept of net zero and how it changes the world. Why don't we just start there? Can you just talk us through what is net zero? What does it mean? Where does it come from? So net zero comes from our understanding of the carbon cycle, this 
process of planetary system through which carbon comes out of things like us and our breath and goes into things like trees when they create photosynthesis um, and is how the world's atmosphere is regulated. And, and that involves two really important ideas, sources and sinks, which Tom, you'll of course remember from Article 2 of the Paris Agreement, which says Only too countries well. promising <laughs> to create a balance between sources and sinks uh, in the second half of this century. And that means net zero. If sources and sinks are equal, that means we're in a state of balance, which is where we need to get to to halt climate change and halt global warming. Fantastic. And what does that mean? So I understand what that means at a meta level. And can you now dial it down? What does it mean? Because it's also applied not only globally in the context of the Paris Agreement, but also with all sorts of myriad of other entities, be it a national government, be it a city, be it a business. What does it mean for those types of entities? I think that's one of the most exciting things I've seen happen since Paris is how every different kind of actor in the world, cities, businesses, even individuals have said, okay, the world has set this goal to have a balance between sources and sinks, net zero. What does that mean for me and for us and for our organization, our, our actor category, uh, what have you? And we've seen all these different actors begin to adopt net zero targets, which, you know, in, in the uh, the global sense means a balance between sources and sinks, and for these actors means for them making sure that their own contributions to climate change are being brought to zero, and should anything be left out over, is being neutralized in a permanent and uh, Paris-compatible way. So getting to sources and sinks balance globally means each and every one of us has to get there as well. So, so, so let's get into that because there's all sorts of fun stuff we can unpack in there. So, I mean, neutralized out emissions, for example, we can probably know two things in that. One is the neutralization can't be 100%. You kind of keep doing whatever you're doing and you just neutralize everything. And it's also impractical for the neutralization to be zero. So somewhere between 100 and zero is the sweet spot. And is that for everybody? Is it the same for everybody? How do you, how do you judge what that means, that neutralization? That's a really important question, which is uh, you know different for se different sectors, different for different entities. But the most important thing that's true for everyone is that the reduction has to come first. You know, mm -hmm. we are in, in a real race against climate change, and there is no way we can avoid uh, immediate, hard, you know, strong, strong reductions in our emissions. That has to be the first and most urgent priority. Um, and if we're especially looking for action, what we can do this year, the next five years, the next ten years, is really going to be on that let's bring emissions down side. Um, eventually, when an actor is close to getting towards zero, um, there will be pieces that will need, these residual emissions will need to be dealt with. And that will require a lot of work through building up natural sinks and possibly even new kinds of technologies we don't even know about yet. Um, but we're, we really need to prioritize the reduction part first and foremost. I mean, the, the question of how much residual emissions makes sense is uh, sort of different for different actors, but. The basic answer is it has to be a tiny amount. Some of the leading um, and networks and initiatives that try to define this question, for example, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, says it should be around you know 10% or less. So that's giving you the ballpark of where okay. um, big companies are aiming for. So basically, yeah, the net part is is an important part of the discussion. We shouldn't, um, you know, if we look away from that, we're forgetting about this balance question, the cycle, the carbon cycle. This is all based on, but reductions are the overwhelming priority. 
And help me understand, you know, I mean, we know globally net zero before 2050 to give us a shot at 1.5. And of course, that's not a 100% shot, but, you know, that's kind of shorthand for, you know, the sort of rough global ambition to keep us in the game. And of course, within that, different sectors face different challenges. So how close are we as a community that's concerned about this issue to having a rough sense of this pay, of a, of a practical and realistic but ambitious pace of decarbonization for each sector? I think we're beginning now to really wrap our heads around what that means. Um, so we've seen a huge amount of uptake of net zero commitments, broadly defined from all different kinds of actors, even some ones you might find surprising, like oil companies, say, or steel companies, things that are really going to be difficult to decarbonize. Um, and that's why I think we need a lot more precision on what we mean by net zero and standards and transparency around this concept. But the pathways are, are really given by climate scenarios. So we know that on average, we need to bring our carbon emissions to about half of what they are in this decade. Um, some sectors will be having to go faster than that because they're on the easier side, electricity, for example. Some sectors will be a little bit slower than that because they are more difficult, say steel or petrochemicals, which are also growing. Um, so it varies by sector, but we all know that this net zero imperative is not some kind of distant uh, 2050 thing that you ignore for 49 years and then yeah. or 29 years from now and then jump on uh, in the last year. It's a pathway. And if we're not beginning to walk that walk uh, today, we're not going to be able to claim the net zero outcome that we need to get to uh, by the middle of the century. So the really exciting thing about net zero is how it spread so widely since it was put into international law in 2015 by the Paris Agreement. But because of that success, we now have a very wide range of different kinds of targets that are saying they're net zero targets. So we need to go a bit deeper to dig into what's actually happening, what these targets look like in practice, to know which ones are more robust, which ones are less robust, and how we can tell the difference. And that's what this report is really trying to do. So we looked at every country in the world. We looked at all of the big states and regions in the 25 largest emitters. That's about 800 actors. We looked at all of the cities in the world with a population of more than 500,000 people. That's about 1,000 cities. And we looked at the 2,000 largest publicly traded companies in the world. That's wow. the vast majority of the global economy. And if you look across all those different actor groups, you'll see that huge portions of them are covered by global net zero targets. Something like 70% of the world economy, if you add all that up, is covered by something that looks like a net zero target. But if you look at which of those net zero targets are actually the most robust, that have strong timeframes, strong governance, are looking at offsetting in a rigorous scientifically based way, you actually find a lot fewer of them that are meeting that higher level of ambition. Something more like 5% of the world economy. Wow. So we have a lot of success with net zero. It's really become an organizing principle in an exciting way that reflects the power, I think, of the Paris Agreement, the sort of Paris effect that is often talked about mm. here on this podcast, um, but also shows how much more work we need to do to realize that vision and bring that ambition in line with the pathway towards success. So, so that's really helpful. And what a fascinating um, place to focus. What um what do you think needs to happen next as a result of this? Because I, I guess there's sort of there's a benefit to standardization and potentially there's there's a risk too of doing that too early that then you kind of kill some of the bubbling innovation. So where do you think we are in that arc and how would you like to see this implemented? So we look at five different areas that net zero targets should meet to be credible. They should have a good 
you know, good timing, make sure they're before the, the 2050 mark, they should cover all emissions, they should be well governed with you know, annual reporting and, and clarity on plans, et cetera. Um, but one of the most important ones is how they use offsetting. This is a really important one to get right because there's a lot of misinformation around offsetting, people thinking they can become quote unquote net zero if they just tomorrow plant a ton of trees and keep doing what they're doing. Um, and that's not right. We know that to balance sources and sinks, we need to think about the time scale that things will exist in the atmosphere. And we know that the carbon you put up uh, today is going to be there for decades, centuries, even up to millennia, um, you know, hanging out there. And so any kind of sink you're restoring, a natural sink or even a technological one you might be developing, it's going to need to be commensurate to that massive time frame, which is why it's so important to reduce emissions now, because we don't have enough trees in the world to compensate for all of these emissions we're putting up into the air. So that's one where I think we need to really see a transition from where we are now in the offsetting debate, which is a pretty wild west landscape. There's some good ones, there's some less good ones, a lot of misinformation about which are which, um, to some really rigorous net zero aligned compensation measures, which will be one part of the solution. I emphasize again, not the main part of the solution, not any way an excuse for avoiding immediate reductions, but a really important transition that we need to see in that piece of the climate ecosystem. Just to add one point on that, the main finding from a report on the offsetting question, though, is not just that people aren't um, aligning their offsetting practices toward net zero, it's that many companies, many cities, even some countries, are not really saying much about how they might use offsetting to achieve net zero. So there's kind of a basic requirement on having some clarity of thought and making that clear to the public, to citizens, to voters, to consumers, to investors who might be interested to know how you're going to use offsetting. So a lot more information needs to be put out about this topic. Mm -hmm. I think the, the key thing we need to do with net zero, in my view, is to celebrate, but also to scrutinize. That it's not enough to say, I want to be Paris aligned, therefore I'm going to call whatever I'm doing net zero because that's my aspiration. That's a great starting point, but we need to now move to the phase of implementation. That means that all of our pledges need to be super clear. They need to be clear in their timescales, what the plan is, what the immediate actions are, what if any use of offsetting might be used. Um, all of those things need to be made uh, available to the public to be able to uh, have credible you know, climate action. It's wonderful to see all the pressure and all the intentional momentum in this space, but there's also a big risk because I think if net zero comes to mean uh, something quite vague, something quite greenwashy in the eyes of many scientists and civil society groups, then it's actually going to do huge damage to what was achieved in Paris, which was to actually, for the first time, recognize in international law that we need a balance of sources and sinks. And if the failure to implement net zero well means it loses credibility, that's going to be actually a step back for that big breakthrough, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's that's a balance. That's a political balance, right there. That's not a technical one. Because if you if you if you squeeze it too quickly, then actually you squeeze out, as you said, seventy percent to five percent. I'd rather have seventy percent feeling optimistic and engaged and excited and moving forward than five percent doing it perfectly and everyone else giving up, right? So that's the balance of, of timing around when you do that, um, which is a tr tricky balance. Tom, you've been very clear about net zero being a balance of sources and sinks. And I'd just like to read you some other terms and invite you to tell me if they mean the same thing. Climate neutral. So climate neutral to me means that you're currently not emitting more than you're putting away, but that you're not necessarily achieving permanent long-term balance between sources and sinks, um, which is how I would think about net zero. Lots of offsets then. Yeah, it could be like a lot of offsets with a lot of emissions. Carbon neutral. 
So net zero is, is primarily a carbon-focused term, but we also know we need to get to zero by uh, net zero by the middle of the century. Um, the other gases are a little bit less, um, a little bit more tricky because they exist on shorter time frames, um, and they're probably on a net zero trajectory a little bit after the middle of the century. So carbon zero is a, a great first goal, but it ultimately will need to be total greenhouse gas net zero to achieve what we need to achieve. Okay, so small distinction there: climate neutral, carbon neutral, Paris aligned. Uh, Paris Aligned, I think, is actually the most vague, but potentially the most exciting, right? Because the Paris Agreement has multiple goals. One goal is getting a balance between sources and sinks. But other goals are, for example, looking at adaptation, looking at some of the justice issues raised in the preamble, looking at finance and aligning that. So I think I would interpret Paris Aligned as um, a, a poorly defined term now, but potentially the most exciting of them all. Paris Compliant. Well, I think this is a tricky one because Paris has a very precise meaning of compliance, where which applies to parties who are state members of the of the agreement, and it's about whether they've done their procedural steps. So I think that one's probably best reserved for the legal processes. Thank God for Tom Hale. Seriously, I've struggled to divert, to, to pull these apart myself, and I was involved in the process that created them. I'd like to propose a new outrage and optimism segment. Could be once a month. Anyone who is confused about a term, chuck it in and we'll throw them at Tom Hale and we'll see what he's got to say about it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, zero. So there you go. If there's any terminology or concept that you're hearing and don't understand, chances are that thousands of us don't either. So tweet us at Global Optimism with the hashtag WhatTheHail if you have a question and we'll put it to Tom. And stay tuned for more episodes in Outrage and Optimism's Race to Zero series. The first two episodes are already out. The Road to Cop with Alok Sharma and Patricia Espinosa and extremely electrifying on the exciting transport transition with motor racing heroes Nico Rosberg and Sarah Price are also available now. Thanks for joining us for this bonus episode. Please do stay in touch and we'll see you as usual next week. Bye. Race to zero!